Well, good morning. Good to see you here. You know, the Journal of Philosophy and Literature periodically gives gold medal awards in bad writing. And a recent award was uh, given to the distinguished scholar Frederick Jameson for his opening sentence in the book Signatures of the Visible. And this is how it goes. The visual is essentially pornographic, which is to say that it has an end in rapt, mindless fascination. Thinking about its attributes becomes an attribute to that if it is unwilling to betray its object. While the most austere films necessarily draw their energy from the attempt to repress their own excess, rather from the more thankless effort to discipline the viewer. I don't know if you were like me, but that insight has changed my life. <laughs> Let me read you a close second. The English professor Rob Wilson. I would love these guys to show up and maybe explain this. But anyway, his bad writing award uh, winning paragraph went like this. If such a sublime cyborg would insinuate the future as post-Fordist subject, his palpably masochistic locations as ecstatic agent of the sublime superstate need to be decoded as the now all but unreadable DNA of a fast deindustrializing Detroit. Just as his Robocop-like strategy of carceral negotiation and street control remains the tirelessly American one of inflicting regeneration through violence upon the radically heteroglossic wilds and others of the inner city. Startling. Well, I want to share with you this morning, after I had read those things, and uh, I read it in a book in, in worship as they were just sharing how intelligible sometimes worship is to people. We in the church sometimes do an incredible disservice, I think, to God. And today when we talk about real worship, I, I don't want people to zone out. I would desire and have prayed with all that I can within me to make real worship a simple, intelligible opportunity for you to engage in, to understand. So that when you leave, you have a sense of what has been said makes sense and could possibly, if you're open, change your life. What is real worship? Well, Paul, as he gave scripture, mentioned his definition. And, and Paul, you are totally wrong. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Paul is essentially right. It's a response. And I want to just give you two basic responses that are involved in worship. It's very simple. Real worship is a growing sense of awe toward God. It's growing in awe toward God. And then the second half of that response is a giving all to God. It's a giving of all to God. That's simply what the Bible seems to indicate real worship is. You know, some of you may have thought through your church experiences, and it may be few and it may be many, and you may have wondered, is it some ritualistic 
kind of mechanical routine where you come to a service and enter into some kind of, in your mind, maybe meaningless emotions that somehow leave your heart cold. You may have questioned, what is real worship? Is it some superstitious Sunday morning calisthenic that we employ, hopefully, that will kind of placate God? Some may come from traditions, and you may be wondering, is it some kind of a rah-rah, yay God kind of hype we engage to bolster God's ego? Is it some kind of personal and corporate performance where we're called to impress God? And the Bible never indicates it's anything like that. See, real worship is a responsive awe towards God that moves one to give all to God. In a sense, this whole series, I, um, as I worked on it and really struggled to put this message together, I think because it's easy to get off track. And through that struggle, I just came to realize this whole series is, is really about being awed by God so that we give all to God. That's real worship. And that's exactly what happens when people encounter the truth of the living God. There's a sense of awe as you encounter that truth. And then there's that response of giving all. So if you look at the passage of Scripture that is in the program, I kind of want to walk through with you a response of Paul. It wasn't his first response. It was one that he had learned, I think, over and over again as he would encounter the truth of God and then respond with a sense of awe. And then what we can natural would be this giving of all. So if you look at Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through verse 36, you see here after Paul has been writing this sense of awe. And then as you begin chapter 12, verse 1, he starts talking about our practical response to that sense of awe, which is to give all. So let's begin to look at the first part, real worship being this response of awe. What he seems to indicate and what the Bible seems to indicate is that when you catch a glimpse of God, you see God, you hear the truth of God, you understand, in a sense, who He is. You've been confronted with it. It's no longer something just in the head, but it actually touches your heart. Maybe you experience a slight caress of His love through some kind of um, activity throughout the day. Or in some way you encounter God, whether it's through reading His Word or hearing His Word through a sermon or maybe a song or a drama that took place. Or some kind of encounter with a friendship. No matter what, in some way, through some means, you're touched by God. And that knowledge of the truth of who God is causes you to kind of open your mouth and go. Paul's writing here to a bunch of Romans. And he wanted to help them understand what their true response to God was to be. And so he takes in this letter... He takes 14 pages, 11 chapters, 311 verses to describe to these people God's immense, extravagant love. He seeks to make it as clear and understandable, reasoning the whole way through, bringing them all through that point. And as Paul finishes writing, he comes to this part right here. And I believe he can hardly contain himself as he's just finished. He's filled with a sense of who this God is and awed by this God He records these thoughts in verse 33. He says, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. 
He begins by just praising God for his brilliance. How unsearchable his judgments, his past beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? It's just kind of almost this ecstatic sense of awe in response to God. Now, I don't know if you've ever caught yourself in awe of someone's brilliance and, and how smart someone may be. You have people around you just go, whoa. I had the experience when I was in college. I roomed with a person who is now at, um, at Willow Creek, one of their teaching pastors. His name is John Ortberg, and I was his roommate. And it was a very humbling experience being with him. Not on his account trying to be. I remember when we first came that first quarter of school, and we were in the same class, and he was, we were assigned a book to read, about 600 pages. And I had spent about three or four hours, and I had gotten through about 150 pages. And he comes waltzing in, and he's finished the book. And we took the test, and he got an A, and I got like a B. And as I kind of was with him, I, I marveled at some of the gifts that God had given him. He was an All-American in tennis. He played the piano proficiently, made this choir that was very difficult to make. I mean, just on and on. And I would at times just go, God, this isn't fair. You know, you ever had this sense of awe at someone's brilliance? Well, that all pales in comparison to who God is as Paul sees him and explains it. And in this sense of awe, he has just come in the presence of God. He has begun to understand, in a sense, this incredible God. And he just can't help but respond by saying, your, your wisdom, the depths of it, is beyond all-knowing. So I want you to think about it for a second. I want you to think about the brilliance of God. Let's take just a moment to dwell upon it. I read a book a few weeks ago called Intelligent Design by a man named William Dembski. And um, the book is, is sending shockwaves to the scientific community because he is basically taking, taking empirical evidence through biochemistry and physics and mathematics and proving the intelligent design behind this universe. I mean, it is truly cutting away at the very foundation of some of the macro levels of evolution. And, and he goes on and he proves that there's an intelligent designer beyond crea- behind all creation. He doesn't have this in, this in this book, but I've got these facts from some other scientists that talk about the brilliance of God. They say when you contemplate the universe, it's fair to say that the master planner left nothing to chance. He says the slant of the earth, for example, tilted at the angle of 23 degrees, produces our seasons. Scientists tell us that if the earth had not been tilted exactly as it is, vapors from the oceans would move both north and south, piling up continents of ice. If the moon were only 50,000 miles away from the earth instead of 200,000, the tides might be so enormous that all the continents would be submerged with water and even the mountains would be eroded. This master planner has designed this world with such brilliance It goes on to say that if the crust of the earth had only been 10 feet thicker, there would be no oxygen. And without it all, animal life would die. That's including us, because we're animals in that sense. Had the oceans been a few feet deeper, just a few feet, carbon dioxide and oxygen would have been absorbed and no vegetable life would exist. Or he goes on, some of these scientists say, consider the earth. The Earth's weight has been estimated at six sextillion tons. That's a six with 21 zeros. 
Yet it is perfectly balanced and turns easily on its axis. It revolves daily at the rate of more than 1,000 miles per hour or 25,000 miles per day. And this adds up to 9 million miles a year. Considering the tremendous weight of the six sextillion tons rolling at its, this fantastic speed around the invisible axis, held in place by unseen bands of gravitation, the words of Job in chapter 26, verse 7, ring with unparalleled significance when he says this. He poised the earth on nothingness. Here's this man, Job, who wrote one of the oldest books in the Old Testament. And said he poised this earth on nothingness. And the earth revolves around its own orbit around the sun, making a long elliptical circuit of 600 million miles each year, which means they are traveling, we're traveling in an orbit at 19 miles per second or 1,140 miles per hour. And he says, consider the sun. Every square yard of the sun's surface is emitting constantly an energy of 130,000 horsepower in flames that are being produced by an energy source much more powerful than coal. And still the sun is only one minor star in 100 billion orbs which comprise our Milky Way galaxy. And if you were to hold out a dime, take a dime, hold it out arm's length on a clear, cloudless night, the coin would black out 15 million stars from your view if your eyes could see with that power. And when we attempt to comprehend the almost countless stars and other heavenly bodies in just the Milky Way galaxy alone. I think Isaiah's praise to this powerful creator makes sense. With awe, he says, lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. And in Psalm 8, David cries out out of awe again when he contemplates his God who has created the heavens. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, he goes, what is man? What am I? What are you in comparison to all that? And so Paul writes in verse 34, who knows the mind of the Lord? It's so incredible. It, it creates a sense of awe. Or who's been his counselor? No one sat down with God at one point and said, let me teach you a little bit more about algebra. It just didn't happen. No one sat down with him and said, let's do some physics and so we can get this idea of force and mass and how this all works together with acceleration. Get these. Didn't do any of that. And Paul's overwhelmed as he sees the truth of this creator who has, who has made not only all the heavens, but has made him. And you know what? If you think about it, you're in awe. But I want to share with you something far, far more significant than that. It's probably the thing I, I love to teach about the most. And that is the power and the wisdom in this brilliance of God compares nothing to His incredible love for you. Think about the generosity and the incredible grace, His extravagant love. I, I don't know what tradition you've grown up in. I don't know what your parents were like and how that even has a parental kind of image has affected you and your understanding of trust. And 
But I have to share with you a truth that is in God's word, which has been evidenced to people and their lives have been dramatically changed and people around them have been changed because they have taken in this one concept and responded with awe. And that's that God loves them. Incredibly. And we can be amazed by God's power and astounded by His brilliance and His goodness even in that. But when you begin, like Paul does here, to be awed by His love, um, huge things begin to take place in your soul. You know, it's possible to see God's wild love affair with mankind even in the little things. This past Thursday through Friday, I had to go up to Thief River Falls. My wife is up there. Her um, mother is moving from her home to an apartment. And um, my father-in-law had a stroke in December and is in a nursing home. He's paralyzed on his whole left side. And I had opportunity to be with him. And it's you know, a struggle to try and listen to him as he's relearning how to talk. For eight months, he's been fed with a feeding tube. And I happened to be there this morning on a Thursday morning when, for the first time, the uh, physical therapist, specifically in the area of, of um, swallowing and, and moving the mouth and the facial features, was there. And for the first time in eight months, he sipped some thickened orange juice, three sips. And then he had three little teaspoons, really, of butterscotch pudding. And his smile as he was able to, to take this food and taste it. And, and I went that evening as we went to dinner and I ordered buffalo wings and scarfed those things down. Um, <laughs> and I prayed that evening with a renewed sense of gratefulness uh, towards this incredible loving God in even this little way who has made us in such a way that he allows us the privilege of taste and swallowing and eating. I mean, we could have been fed with a tube. We could have a procedure of eating that would be painful. But I just am amazed at the goodness and love of this God who made us to eat. And eating was a pleasure, and for some of us, too much of a pleasure. Um, but not just only the ability to taste good food, but last night I was out with friends and to even share good food with friends. What an incredible experience. I think as Paul had said, it's so one-sided at times. This brilliant, amazing, wise God who has placed all this around us so that everything moves. We don't even give thought to it. And I think He does that purposely. I don't think He wants us necessarily dwelling on whether the earth is going to make its rotation. But you know... From time to time, we taste the pleasure and goodness of God. And I think our hearts should respond. And go, this is awesome. This is incredible. And that's what Paul seems to be saying here. If you look at verse 35, he says, Who's ever given to God that God should repay him? In a sense, we're just all debtors. He is so incredibly generous and extravagantly good to us. And he is so outrageously loving towards us that you can't help but after he says 14 pages of this, he goes, I can't believe this, God. So that in Romans 
Chapters 1 through 3, let me just give you a brief little summary of, of what his road was and the experience he had. Paul says that we as people judge and hate and are proud and can be selfish. Anybody felt that ever before? Any of those? And we just look out for ourselves in comparison to God and who He is. We fall so desperately far from measuring up. If God doesn't discard us, He still loves us. Billy Graham states it this way, God loves you, you're rebellious, you cheat, you commit immorality, you're selfish, you sin. Kind of blunt. But God loves you with an intensity beyond anything that I could describe to you. He loves you and He loves you so much that He gave His only Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. And that thing that kept Christ on the cross was love, not a nail. In Romans chapter 4-6, through 6, Paul continues... He said that we've racked up such an enormous debt due to our sin. We are in such arrears that not only should our life wages be garnished, but our very life should be thrown into eternal prison. Which the Bible calls hell, which is a reality for anyone who does not come to grips with this moral debt. Yet Paul again reveals that even though the very wages of our sin is death, God's love is so great that he gives the gift of life to anyone who will receive it. His love is like this towards our moral and spiritual debt. Let's say you came to me and you needed a million dollars for personal expenses. And let's just even imagine a bit greater that I could even give you that million dollars, okay? I do that, I write you out a check, it cashes, you're a surprise, and you begin to enjoy it and spend it. A year later, I request that you begin making monthly interest-free payments of $10,000 on the debt. You agree to it. And so on the first day of each month, you sit down to write the check knowing you don't have any way of covering it. But just as you're doing that, the morning mail arrives. And in the mail is a, a, a letter from me. And you're thinking, oh man, he's going to bill me. And in the mail, instead of a bill, there's a check for me for $10,000 to cover your payment. What would your response be? I like that, Kevin Meyer. Wow! You know? Isn't that what we... That's the love of God. We not only borrow and, and offend His moral holiness, but He even, in telling us to pay it back, goes and pays the debt. And Paul writes that this magnanimous, lavish, reckless God steps in and pays your debt of my sin and of our sin through the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ. And God's love is so outrageous. And Jesus spoke of it and He offended people. He offended, you know who He offended the most? He offended the people that thought somehow through their own efforts, through their self, they could, they could earn or they could please God by their own acts. He offended those kind of people. They were called Pharisees who felt pretty good about their goodness. And at one point he tells the story of this prodigal son who runs off. And then he says, here's what the father's like. He's really a prodigal father. Prodigal meaning lavishly giving. And he says his son goes and squanders everything and then one day comes to his senses and decides to come home. But he hears the picture of the father that offended people. 
You see, in a Jewish day and age, if a son did that, you would disown him, you would forget about him. I mean, literally forget about him and never allow that son into your presence again. He would be as if he is not your son. You would look at him if you saw him and you would look through him. And it gives this picture of this father who, what he shows is this father who goes to the end of his property every day since that son had left, looking out over the horizon for a speck that could possibly be his son returning home. He would do it day in and day out is the picture of this father who is so in love with his son. He's given him already everything and the guy spoiled it all and squandered it all. And he shows his father and then one day he's out at the edge of his property and he sees a speck and he sees it coming towards him and he's hoping it could be his son. He comes closer and he's not sure it looks like him. He's in rags and he's tattered and his life has been made a mess by the way he's lived it. And as his son continues to come closer, he sees it's his son. And he does something that no father would ever do. He, He, in his love, is totally undignified. He runs, he pulls up his robe, and he runs to his son. A Jewish father would never run. And he grabs his son, and his son can hardly get the confession of repentance out of his lips. And the father grabs him and says, I'm so glad to see you. Welcome home. And you'd go, I'd be in awe of that kind of love. That's His love for you. That is His love for you. And then Romans 7 and 8 explain that even though we may intend to do good in our heart, you ever, you know, I really want to do good, God. I really want to do good. Yet in reality, you fail to act on it and you just feel guilt and sick. Paul said God still loves us. He still loves us. In fact, so great is God's love that nothing, no nothing, can ever separate us from it. So that Paul pens these most powerful words in all of Scripture, I think, found in Romans 8, verses 35 to 39. And if you have trouble getting the love of God from here down into your heart, I ask you to take Romans 8, 35 to 39, type it out on a piece of paper, and memorize it. For he says, who shall ever separate you from the love of God? For he's just shown that not even your sin, anything you could do, could. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. Let's list them all, he says. No, in all these things, he writes. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. This brilliant, this powerful, this incredibly majestic God who's created all this for us. Not only has he got all that, he loves us. So that Paul writes, who has ever given to God that God should repay him. And from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. In a sense, he's saying he's the bank. (laughs) It all flows from him. And the accounts are open to anybody who will receive it. And so Romans 9 through 11 is this incredible, difficult part to understand. But the main point is this. Don't get caught up in all the difficulty. The main point is this, that if you have heard this truth, And you are willing to receive it. God's choice has been on your life. He has chosen you. Don't understand it. I sat, as I 
prayed and, and reflected and let this truth dwell into my heart, I sat and I said, who am I? But I have the privilege to share with you this truth. Who am I that God would choose me with the gifts that I have to stand before you and tell you this? And in the same way, in your own prayer, you can say, who am I, God, that you have gifted me? And some of you have gifts and you're not using them because you're afraid. And it's another just statement of God, just love me. I will trust you love me and I will begin to explore the gifts. I will use them for people. That's the least I can do. And when you come to this point where you stand before this powerfully brilliant, wise, master planner of all this and find out that he is masterfully personal and in love with you. There's only one response to this, Paul. In awe. Verse 12, chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, he says, as a result of this. And it seems almost strange he has to say, I urge you. But, you know, we all have wills and we all have our own, basically our wills. And we are all many gods. We all can run our lives and some of us run it very successfully. But God has made us in such a way that our life runs best when it's aligned with his will. And because, again, of our selfishness and our pride, he has to say, I urge you. You almost go, wow, why? But when you're in awe of the, and confronted with this truth, he says, in view of all God's mercy towards you, here's what I want you to do. Let this awe of God move you to give all of yourself to God. Holding back nothing. Taking this precious gift of your will and saying, God, here is my will. My soul, my strength, my mind, everything. I will give it to you. And I want to share with you that's for, for every person there comes a point in their life where at one time you do that. That's what this is. He says to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. There's a one-time act of of offering yourself to God. And he calls it living sacrifices because in their day and age they brought sacrifices that would be placed in an altar and killed. God doesn't care to do that in your life. You know, some of you think, if I give my life to God, he's going to send me to Africa. Ooh, ish. I don't want to go there. Or he's going to make me have to do this. I've had someone say to me, you know, if I really got serious about God, would I have to come to church every Sunday? I said, yeah, you better believe it. No, I didn't. I said... I said, you know what? God is so loving that if He's calling you to do something, He'll put the desire in your heart before you ever get there. He'll write the check and you'll be able to cash it. Those desires. And so He says, just offer your will to Me and by placing your will in My hands, I will begin to work in your life in such a way that you will be amazed and it will be a living thing. That I will use your life. The best way I can describe it, and I'll kind of close here with one more thought, and that is, is if we were to take an offering again in just a moment, how many would be up for that? Okay. But not, I'm not, I wouldn't ask you to give cash or a check or 
put your credit cards in there or anything like that? I would say, if we take the offering this time, what I want you to do is to imagine getting in the plate yourself. Because when you get in the plate and say, here I am, God, I offer myself to you, there's this huge paradigm shift that takes place. Because now, if you mean that and you give your will over to him, you realize it's not so much 10 or 15 or you know, 20 hours you throw in the plate. You're recognizing that you, all that you have and own, even your earning power is his, to be given to him as he so directs. And so in that sense, it's a one-time act of commitment where you offer yourself to him. And the other part of this all comes in chapter in verse two. He says, don't conform any longer to the pattern of the world. Basically, the habits and thoughts that you had when you were without this knowledge and this experiential um, inworking of his love in your life. When you used to have to manipulate and, and you maybe had to lie to get a direction or get something you want. Or you would um, use anger to get what you want. I don't care what it would be, but something that you have been conformed with by the world, you've learned. He says, now what I want you to realize at this one time, all time act of Jumping into the plate changes your whole life. But it's not just a one-time act. It's a daily renewing of that act in your heart. It can happen moment by moment so that you begin to say, God, in this situation towards this person, I will not use my anger to get my way. I will in patience wait upon you, be very clear and logical and direct if it needs to be confrontation, and allow you to work in that person's heart and then respond according to that. And then what happens in that as you daily, moment by moment, give yourself over to the ways of God, which are really simple. It's just as, you know, it's, it's like the fruits of the Spirit. It's being loving. It's choosing joy. It's choosing peace. It's becoming patient. It's choosing to be gentle and faithful and good. All those things. This is what he says. Then, when you live that way, this real worship that takes place will allow for you to test and prove that this will of God that you may have been afraid of is really good, highly pleasing, and he says perfect here or, or best. And I just challenge you to think about that. Now I'm going to close with this one thought. For some of you who are starting out on this path and you're not even ready to jump in the plate, I just encourage you to think about coming on a regular basis and hearing this truth. Letting the presentation of truth on these Sunday mornings begin to kind of challenge your, your, um, your worldview. For those of you who have jumped in the plate and are beginning to renew your mind so that you can be transformed and, and test and prove these, this will of God as being true, I want to share with you that what we as pastors and overseers are right now in prayer about, and that is we'll meet even tomorrow night to pray deeply about it, and that is that we want to... I see one of the things in worship is develop a passion and hunger for this God. And what we want to do is as a group learn to do that. So as we come to the fall, I want to ask you now, because you're making plans for September, to put on your little calendar Wednesday nights as best you can. Mark those first four off. I'm going to be speaking on why worship. We're going to just move into that whole area and hopefully develop together a passion for God. You've know, you got lots of commitments. I'm going to ask you to put that as one of the top commitments. Prayerfully make that kind of a choice before God. Let Him lead you. Let's close. I'm going to ask you to stand. Thanks so much for your patience. Let's pray. Father, we've had a great time um, hearing great music and uh, being challenged in our own spirits by that.
then God, I believe you've challenged us by your spirit right now. And every heart here has um, areas that maybe you're kind of just touching. And I just pray there'd be responsive hearts to um, this truth. There would be a sense of awe that would say, God, in this area, I will give you my all. And I commit myself to you. God, thank you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Have a great morning.